Well, it's our normal practice here to preach sermons expositionally and go through different books of the Bible. As you know, over the last couple months, we've been walking verse by verse um, through the Sermon on the Mount. That, that's our, our normal practice here. But the next couple of weeks, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Um, this week and next week, we're going to be talking about the topic of prayer. And uh, the object here really is to make all of you feel as guilty as possible, um, because none of us pray as much as we should. Uh, and, and if you do, you're probably doing it wrong, right? Um, just kidding. The goal here is not to induce guilt. Uh, it's to introduce God. Uh, you see, I, I believe that next to Bible intake, prayer is probably the most important spiritual discipline that, that a Christian can do to be in relationship with God himself. Uh, I also believe that, that it's the most underutilized weapon uh, in the Great Commission arsenal. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that as we go along. Uh, we believe that God's arm is not short and that his ear is not deaf. In Psalm 46, verse 1, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And so I want to start this morning by asking a handful of questions about what we believe about God. Um, do you believe... That God is all-powerful? Do you believe that God knows everything? Do you believe that right now He is everywhere present on this planet? And do you believe that He's a God who hears? If that's true, I want to ask this morning, do you have somebody better to talk to? Do you have someone with better resources or more capacity? Do you have someone who knows more than God? If so, then why do we talk to him so little? You do what you believe. Everything else is just religious talk. Shannon and I heard about a pastor from Oklahoma who powerfully made this point. Uh, he was preaching to a huge group of Christians, and he asked this question. He said, how many of you believe in prayer? He had them hold up their hands. Now, as would probably be the case here this morning, most, if not all of the room, when he asked that question, do you believe in prayer, they raised their hands. And the guy said, okay, keep, keep your hands up. Okay, how many of you spent less than five minutes in prayer today? If that's, that's the case, drop your hands. And more than half of the room at that point dropped their hands. And then he said, okay, how many of you spent less than ten minutes today in prayer? Almost no one's left at that point. Okay, less than fifteen minutes. And all the hands in the room we're down at that point. We do what we believe. In fact, John Calvin calls prayer the chief exercise of faith. In other words, prayer is the primary way true faith expresses itself. Uh, this also means, on the other side of it, that prayerlessness is practical atheism, demonstrating our lack of belief in God. 
Uh, there's this, this story about Martin Luther. Many of you may have heard it, but there's this story about Martin Luther where apparently he was asked what he'd be doing the next day, and this was his response. He, he said, work, work from early to late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Stories like that are kind of a gut punch, right? Because we know we're not like that. I'm not like that. Again, this is not meant to induce guilt. I'm speaking as one who struggles here. In fact, when it comes to prayer, I want us to know that we're all sinners. We're all pretty naturally awful at prayer. I want to read you an actual quote from Martin Luther. No one knows if that first quote's actually said by him or not, but I want to read to you an actual quote from Martin Luther. At the most busy time of his life, he wrote to his friend Philip Melanchthon, and he said this. He said, You extol me so much. Your high opinion of me shames and tortures me, since, unfortunately, I sit here like a fool, hardened in leisure. Pray little. Do not sigh for the church of God. In short, I should be ardent in spirit, but I am ardent in the flesh, in lust, laziness, leisure, and sleepiness. Already eight days have passed in which I have written nothing, in which I have not prayed or studied. This is partly because of temptations of the flesh, partly because I am tortured by other burdens. So, this morning, if you struggle with prayer, you're in good company. We're all sinners there. But, on the other hand, I want to suggest to us that our prayer life is revealing. Our prayer life reveals how much we really want communion with God, and how much we really depend on Him. It's been said that to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. I'm going to say that again. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. What an astounding quote. In, in reaction to that quote, uh, a friend of mine named John Unwachekwa, uh, a mouthful of a name, John Unwachekwa, he, he rightfully says, we don't treat prayer like breathing. We treat it like prescription medication meant to rid us of an infection. Once the infection is gone, so is the frequency and fervency of our prayers. That's why I want to spend the next two weeks kind of diving into prayer. I want us to know God. I want us to commune with God. And I want us to believe God and to trust in God as a church and as individuals. I want us to learn as a church to depend on God. For us to realize that at the core of our being, we need God to move. For us to know that if God doesn't intervene, we're sunk. That we need his help. Think about that. But when we're prayerless, we're saying, God, we've kind of got this on our own. We don't really need your help here. And we know up here that that couldn't be farther from the truth. We want to learn how to pray to express our dependence on God. We also want to see people who are far from God come to know God. We want to see the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We want to see that happen right here in Santa Cruz County and in California 
and in the United States and to the ends of the earth. Did you know that no great advance of the gospel has ever taken place in history without there being a concerted intercessory prayer effort that has gone before it? Think about that. Think about even the New Testament and the early church here. How, how did their work advance in the book of Acts? Acts chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They were devoting themselves to prayer. Ten verses later, they're picking who should replace Judas, and it says, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. You see how they're praying on the basis of the character of God here. What about when they were picking deacons for the church? Acts chapter 6, verse 6. And they set before the apostles, or they set them, yeah, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. Pointing deacons. Okay. What about appointing elders in the church or pastors? Acts 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What about when they faced adversity as a church? Paul and Silas are in jail. In Acts 16.25, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. What about sickness? Acts 28.8. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him, healed him. What about when they were under threat of persecution? Peter and John are brought before this council, and they're threatened, and they're told, don't proclaim the gospel. Don't do it anymore. What do they do? They say, we cannot speak but what we've heard. Then check this out. Acts 4, verse 23. They're under threat. And they say this. It says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
So they're under threat of persecution. They're actually praying Psalm 2 back to God in this text. It says, when they had prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God. They're praying for boldness amidst persecution. And their prayers answered by the Holy Spirit, empowering them for witness. They're treating prayer like breathing throughout the book of Acts. It's hard to find a story in the entire book of Acts where they're not praying. That was just a part of life. More than that, it was a huge part of life. So I want to ask the question there, where did the early church and the apostles learn this? Where did they learn it? From Jesus. He was a man of prayer. Sometimes praying all night, sometimes in the morning, sometimes along the road, sometimes alone, sometimes with others. Understand this. To be like Jesus is to be a person of prayer. The disciples saw that when Jesus prayed, things happened. Can we say that about the church today? When I look around the evangelical landscape, can I say, Wow, we are a praying people. And when we pray, things happen. Unfortunately, I can't say that. In most churches, prayer, unfortunately, is no more than just a transition element in the service. So that the band can come on stage without people seeing them walk up there. It's something that we merely do ritually before our meals. How tragic. We say things like, hey, can can someone just give us a quick little prayer here? A quick prayer? We're addressing the God of the universe. Do we expect that he's listening? Do we expect that he's going to answer? What if we had some things going on right here in our lives as a church that, that we said, We know that if God doesn't intervene here, we're in trouble. If God doesn't break through here, we're going down. What if we we said things like that and actually approached God like that? Are we pleading with the God of the universe as God's children and as God's church? Jesus was a man of prayer. And when he prayed, things happened. And so, what did the disciples do when they saw this? They observed this about Jesus. What did they do when they saw this? And we're going to look at this text more fully next week, but Luke 11, verse 1, says this, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. The disciples saw that Jesus was a man of prayer, and so this was their response. Lord, teach us to pray. Think about that for a second. It's so tempting to say things like, well, I'm just not good at praying. Or I'm just not a natural prayer. Or I know so-and-so and they're a, a real prayer warrior. Think about this. Luke 11, 1. Prayer can be learned. The disciples here say, Lord, teach us to pray. We're going to be 
focusing more on this next week, but here's the reality here. No matter how weak or strong your prayer life is at this very moment, you can grow. You can learn to pray. This is part of what it looks like to be like Jesus. Further, Jesus himself expects us to pray. Uh, In Donald Whitney's Spiritual Disciplines book that that many of you have been reading, he, he says something along the lines of this. He says, if Jesus were to appear to you personally this morning, or let's say that, that Jesus walked in through the doors back there, and he said, he expected you, he expected me, to pray. What if that were the case? If that happened, would you be more faithful in prayer? Look at what Jesus says in his word. Matthew 6, 5, and when you pray, Matthew 6, 6, and when you pray, Matthew 6, 7, and when you pray, Matthew 6, 9, pray then like this. Luke 11, 9, and I tell you, ask, seek, knock. Luke 18, 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray. I want you to hear this loud and clear. The words of Jesus from Scripture are as much his words for you as if he spoke your name and said them to you face to face. Since the moment that I felt called by God to the Bay Area, this text, Luke 10.2, has been a key verse for me. And it says this, Luke 10.2, and he, speaking of Jesus, he said to them, The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you see that? There's there's ministry to be done and things to do all around Jesus at this point. There's sick people to heal, truths to be taught, the gospel to be proclaimed. And what does Jesus say first? Pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. The rest of the New Testament actually continues this pattern. Paul in Colossians 4.2, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Uh, Very briefly, I want to just... Just dive into what exactly we're even talking about here. It's good and well to say, okay, I get it. We should pray. What does that mean, really? Well, there's, there's different types and forms of prayer whenever you really start to dig in and look at what's going on in prayer scripturally. Uh, many of you have, have heard of the acrostic acts before, and we're going to kind of discuss that a little bit next week. Prayers of adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication or asking uh, things of God. Uh, But right now, I want to touch on on two aspects of prayer that I specifically believe that we as Santa Cruz Baptists need to really press into. Uh, I want you to think about this. In in C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, uh, The Land of Narnia, at first glance, kind of seems innocent, right? When you read through the book or watch the movie. But the truth is that we know that this land of Narnia is under the rule of who? 
The white witch, right? And one of the best things about the characters in Narnia is that they knew that they had an enemy. They knew that they were in the fight. But when the sons of Adam, so to speak, stepped into Narnia, they stepped into a war zone. There was no neutral ground. Such is the case with us. Think about these passages. I'm going to read off a ton of passages really quickly. And I want you to think about what these texts have in common. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 1 Timothy 1.18 This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. 1 Timothy 6.11-12 But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 2 Timothy 2, 3-4 Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. 2 Timothy 4, 7 I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4 For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So what's the theme that, that all of these texts have in common? War language. The message of Scripture is that we, as God's people, don't live in peacetime. That time's coming, but it's not now. And what we see in Scripture is that right now, the mission that we've undertaken has opposition. We live in a time of spiritual warfare. A time in which God, with all of his righteousness, is battling Satan in his reign of darkness. And this isn't merely hypothetical. And this should make a difference in our lifestyle if this is true. What I'm suggesting is that if those things are true, and I believe they are because the scripture says they are, we must adopt a wartime mentality. We don't live in a peacetime. And one way that this makes a difference is in the way we use our possessions. It makes me think about America in World War II. There was a certain amount of buy-in from everyone in the country, right? All possessions went toward the mission at hand. In wartime, we spend money differently. There's a seriousness about the cause. We all cut back. Possessions turn into resources. Things that were once for simple pleasure-seeking become available to carry out the mission. The ship that was used as a luxury liner becomes a troop carrier. In wartime, we ask different questions about what to do with our lives than we would in peacetime. What can I do to advance the cause? What can I do to bring victory? What sacrifice can I make or, or what risk can I take to ensure the joy of triumph? 
What more can I give to meet the needs of those on the front lines of battle? That's all part of living on a mission. So this truth that, that we live in the midst of a war affects how we view money and possessions. But what about prayer? That's what I want to focus on. What, what does prayer have to do with the truth that we're a people at war? John Piper notably said this. He said this. He said, we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. We cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. In other words, until we come to grips with this truth that we live in a spiritual war zone, we won't fully grasp the necessity and the privilege that is prayer. So, what is prayer in this fallen world? Again, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper says this. He compares prayer to a wartime walkie-talkie. A wartime walkie-talkie. He says that, that God's given us prayer because Jesus has given us a mission. And that prayer has a specific function in that mission. He says there's an intended function that God has given to us in prayer. He says God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. So here we are, left in a fallen world, but not left alone. So we fight this battle, we seek to advance the mission. And the first way we do that, I'm suggesting this morning, is through prayer. Prayer is the means through which we kind of maintain communication and draw strength in the midst of carrying out the mission. When we pray, we actually prove that we're on the front lines of the battle against the spiritual forces of evil. In short, prayer is the lifeline of the mission. But what about when prayer malfunctions? Why does prayer malfunction? Well, when I was growing up, I had a friend who had this awesome house. Uh, it wasn't necessarily huge, but uh, he had this intercom system in the house. Many of you might have been in a house that has that. Uh, it was awesome. And what that meant is no matter what room you wanted, you could ask for whatever you wanted from wherever you were. It didn't matter which room you're in. You could walk up to the intercom and press the button and ask for anything. So what did we as kids use that for? We asked for more stuff, right? We'd be in my friend's room, and so we'd call his mom on the intercom and ask for more bagel bites. It's amazing. If we weren't comfortable, we could get comfortable by just pressing a button. That's the picture of prayer in far too many of our lives, myself included. We've turned a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom system by which we ask for more comfort in the playroom. Why does prayer malfunction? The mechanism or prayer isn't what's broken. The users are. We are. Think about what a mind shift this is. Prayer is not like calling on a maid service. 
It's calling home base from the front lines of battle. Prayer is not for soldiers who have gone AWOL or for those who have abandoned the mission. Prayer is for those who are on active duty. So the reality that we live in wartime and not peacetime sheds light on the intended function of prayer. It's a gift of the Father by which we gain strength and direction in carrying out the mission of the Son. This is why prayer has everything to do with a missional life. It's our lifeline. So if this is the case, if prayer is our wartime walkie-talkie, then our lives should be characterized by robust, humble, and continual prayer. Another aspect of prayer that I want us to clearly understand is this. This word, prayer, we've been using it the entire time. This word prayer, when Jesus says pray like this, the primary word used for prayer throughout the Bible is this word prosukamai. You can hear there our English word prosecute, right? Prosukamai. You get this image of a lawyer standing in the presence of a judge or a jury and prosecuting or making a case. And that's one aspect that I want us to understand as intercessors or those who, who pray for others. When we prosukamai, when we pray, we're going before the God of the universe to make a case for why he should act. To be clear, we're not God's puppet masters. We don't tell him to jump and he says how high. That's not how it works. But we are, in the scriptures, told to prosukamai God. The difference is that in scripture, when godly people speak to God, they do it out of reverence and specifically praying God's character back to him. We've already seen that a couple times in the text we've read this morning. And the classic example of this is Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Moses is coming down the mountain. He's received the word of the Lord. He's received the Ten Commandments. He's coming down the mountain and God's people have formed idols and began to worship them while he's gone. And so God says, I'm going to wipe them out. This is my paraphrase here, but he says, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses says, God, you can't do that. And he then begins to prosukamai God, make a case for why God can't do that. And how does he do it? He makes a case for why. Exodus 32, 11 through 14. Exodus 32, 11 through 14. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. You see that? Moses makes a case based on God's character and God's promises. 
and out of a desire to see God glorified among the nations. So Santa Cruz Baptist Church, this is why I'm preaching on prayer today and next week. That's what I want to see happen right here in our midst. A group of people that are sold out on mission for God's glory. A people that are desperately dependent on God to see that happen. God is in charge. He knows all the details of every single one of our lives. He knows everything that's going on. And prayer connects us to the activity of God. Prayer connects us to the activity of God. And again, I just want to say that that this is not about guilt. Our prayers should be joyful. This is the God of the universe who desires to talk to you, desires to talk to me, desires to talk to us as a people. How amazing is that, that he's invited us into communication with him? This isn't meant to be something that we feel guilty about. It's meant to be something that we enter into with joy. What would happen if we were a praying church? Not just a church who prays periodically, but a praying church. That prayer is a part of our DNA. That prayer for us is breathing. That's my heart for us. Next week, we're going to get a lot more practical on prayer, I promise you. But I want to leave us with some encouragement from the book of James before we go. Look with me at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Uh, If if you want a a full exposition on that section of text, uh, you can find it on our website uh, under our sermon series on James. We actually walked through that. But I want to focus on the the second part of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Some manuscripts say this, the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. I, I want you to know today that that's true. I mentioned earlier that when Jesus prayed, things happened. And it's easy to kind of respond to that by saying, yeah, but that's Jesus. I'm just a normal guy. I'm just a a normal woman. Look at what James says about Elijah in verses 17 and 18. He was a man with a nature like ours. He was a man with a nature like ours. 
The effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. Do you believe that this morning? We do what we believe. We do what we believe. So my charge this morning is this. Believe in the power of prayer. And begin acting on that belief today. Finally, I want us to know that prayer is only possible because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus is our high priest and mediator. He stands before the throne of God on our behalf and intercedes for us. Romans 8, 33 and 34 says this. It says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Isn't that amazing? 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23 goes on and spells this out really clearly. I love this. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Without Jesus' atonement for us on the cross, our prayers would just hit a brick wall. But they don't. Instead, in Christ, we are declared righteous. And the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. Jesus stands before God and mediates your prayers on your behalf. That's good news. Your prayers and my prayers are received in Jesus' name. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, a lot of this just, just admittedly might sound strange to you or foreign to you. First and foremost, this is what we want you to know loud and clear. The God of the universe created you. He created you to have a relationship with Him. But all of us have sinned and cut ourselves off from relationship with Him. We've rejected and rebelled against the King of Heaven. But that's not the end of the story. In God's goodness and mercy and justice, He sent His Son into the world. He lived a perfect life. Then He went to the cross and died in our place as our substitute. He was buried and three days later rose from the grave, defeating sin, Satan, and death. And when we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we will be saved. If, if you've heard nothing else this morning, we want you to know that. And we want you to know, and we want to invite you right now to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Second, 
We want you to know that this good news is actually what makes prayer effective. Without Jesus, prayers don't make it past the ceiling. The only reason we as Christians pray and believe that it's going to be heard by God the Father is because of Jesus the Son. The only way to God is Jesus himself. In light of all of that, let's spend some time praying.